welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching, learning, community, conversation, and your digital life, made for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tecumloops Te Sequapum within the unceded traditional lands of Sequapum Ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And it's exam season, folks. Let's get into it. Happy exam week. I hope you are observing in the traditional way which is if you are currently teaching faculty, I hope that you are quelling your uh, coffee-induced anxiety gut (laughs) and getting through your marking pile okay. If you are support staff, I hope that you are hanging in there. If you are a student, I hope you have every success in the world and also that you have time for a big deep breath. This time of year has always had this particular rhythm, right? It's the moment when campus starts to get quiet, but it's like, it's like suspiciously quiet, right? Because the reason it's quiet is because everybody is panicking. (laughs) It's not like, it's not like the quiet of summer. It's a much more intense sort of uh, like horror movie (laughs) type quiet. I hope that you're finding some balance this exam season, regardless of what it brings for you. In the world of faculty support, I am looking at a lot of grade books. I am setting up a lot of Moodle shells for next term. I'm having some really interesting conversations about what assessments did and didn't work this term and what to do differently next time. It's a busy time for me, but it's nothing like it used to be when I was teaching faculty and I was marking all night long for the rhythm of this 13-week semester where the drum just beats and beats and beats. (laughs) Thinking about that rhythm was sort of why I wanted to talk to our guest today. I've invited John Belshaw. John Belshaw is an open learning faculty member in history, and he's also created some really great and well-used open education resources. So he's an excellent person to talk to about all things open, the ethos of open learning, and why it's something special. I work in open learning, but I don't always get a lot of contact with open learning faculty members. So it was really lovely to talk with John about, well, all the things we both care about. I'm going to let John take it from here. I am here today with TRUOL instructor John Belshaw. John, hi. I'm hoping uh, we can talk a bit about all things OL today, but first, I'd love it if you would introduce yourself. Uh, I'm John Belshaw. I'm a professor of history. Uh, I've been working with Thompson Rivers University in its various forms for many, many years and teaching on campus, uh, but in the last 12, 10, 12 years teaching uh, through open learning. Uh, I have a PhD in economic and social history. In addition to teaching for OL, you uh, develop open educational resources, right? Some of the most popular that we use, I think. Yeah, it, that was great fun. Uh, so developed three open textbooks. Um, uh, the first two were uh, pre and post Canadian uh, history, and uh, those are widely used across Canada. And uh, 
Uh, also uh, in uh, working with Chelsea Horton and Sarah Nichol. Chelsea is also a, a TRU OL faculty member. We worked up uh, an Indigenous Histories textbook, uh, which is, I mean, what all, what's wonderful about these things is they're available online all the time, free to anyone. You don't have to sign up or promise your firstborn child or anything like that. <laughs> you just, you can just use them. And, and for faculty, uh, wherever they are in Canada, uh, they can use them, instruct their students to go to the site and do that. But if they want to make a change to it, if, for example, they're in Newfoundland and there's really not a lot in the textbooks about Newfoundland, as you might imagine, or PEI, they can add stuff to it. They can reuse, reproduce, re rejig. They can do all kinds of fun stuff with the textbook, you know, cut out the bits they're not interested in and, uh, and, and make it their own. And, uh, I think for for a whole bunch of pedagogical reasons, that's just that's just great. I agree. I think we share an open ethos, and I'm hoping we'll talk about that a bit today. And I will share links to those uh, texts in the show notes if folks want to go and check them out. But I want to start today, John, with I, I feel like we're in kind of this moment at TRU where we have a senior administration that's very interested in uh, like an integrated vision of the university. And ever since arriving here, I felt a little bit like, you know, my job lives in open learning. I support the campus community. I sort of straddle these two worlds. And I'm very aware of how little campus in particular <laughs> understands about the world of OL. So I wanted to start by just asking you, since we have a lot of campus faculty who listen, from the perspective of an, being an OL faculty member, can you talk a bit about what your teaching life is like? Oh, well, that's a great question. I, I first let me say when, when I hear that there's uh, interest in integrating the open learning side and the face-to-face -face side, my my first concern is that what integration means is what happens when a shark swallows a smaller fish, and I think that that's that has been part of the the conversation around OL. Uh, within TRU for quite some time. You know, how do we how do we bring that into TRU as opposed to how do we really create something of a synthesis between the two? And and uh, that that's that's I I hope that's where the conversation goes because there are strengths uh, on both sides of the house and I think they're very complementary. I for one think they they need to be both sides of the house for some time to come. The, the thing about online teaching and open teaching they're different things. You teach is is just putting your course into some sort of shell and away you go. And there's various degrees of doing that too. I've, I've taught online for uh, for the University of the Fraser Valley, for Royal Roads University. Very very different models. Teaching in open is 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 inherently. I, I think it's inherently different. Partly it's the the self paced aspect of it because there is a box around the thing you know you you can't and you mustn't change your course as you're going along you know we we have a, a different kind of control over over what the content is so that other faculty OL faculty members can take on a course and it's it's still packaged and ready to go but within that your first focus is so all the time that you might take to you know revise your lectures or revise your course outline. Every term, and I know colleagues who do this on campus, will spend weeks doing that. Well, I don't do that, but what I do is I spend a lot of time in contact with students. And I think that's the real value-added proposition here. So on campus, most of your students are going to be 18 to 22 years of age. Most of my students are in their mid-30s. They're moms, mostly. 
Uh, they have two, 2.5 kids. Kids go to bed at eight o'clock. That's when they turn on their open learning course. And so, you know, their rhythms are very different from their circadian rhythms are very different from those of on-campus students who are worried about whether they can get a part-time job working uh, somewhere in town to, to subsist as they do their undergraduate studies. This is, they're in a very, these people are in a very, these students are in a very different situation in their lives. Um, and some are 18, some are 20, and some are just filling a gap and all the rest of it. But what they need as they're going through these courses is, generally speaking, a lot more communication. It's not hand-holding, but they need to be engaged. And, and they're not going to be engaged with other students because it's self-paced. So they have to be, you know, I'm the one who has to engage them. I have to be ready if they seek me out, but I also have to put myself out there. And, uh, and a quick turnaround is absolutely essential. That's an interesting perspective on it. I've never heard it articulated in that way, that instead of having sort of a, a classroom of colleagues who they can turn to, they really are in much more of a, like a one-on-one relationship with you as the instructor. Yes, that's right. It's, it's much more, in many respects, it's per- bizarrely, perversely, it's more like an Oxbridge seminar, a one-to-one tutorial uh, than what we would tend to see on campus. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm when you when you were talking about sort of what, what integration might look like. I similarly share <laughs> I share anxiety around that. I think the values of open learning are also values that TRU as a whole either holds or once held. And I'm thinking in particular about the the open access mandate and what it means to have a population of students who come to the university via the open access pathway. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I, I do. When, when uh, the two institutions, uh, UCC and BCOU, fused back around was it, 2005, there was a lot of confusion as to what constituted open. And, and the president at the time, Roger Barnsley, spent a lot of time talking to people at the uh, Open University in the UK, uh, trying to get a sense of what openness meant and, and, and how this, how this uh, would, might work here. And, and you know, our mandate, our legislation is, is very clear on this. We are BC's open institution, and we are meant to provide uh, access to open learning, not just to OL courses, but to open learning uh, across the province and beyond. And, and, and that's, that's a, a mandate, uh, a mission uh, that, that uh, how to put it, it, it you know, a, lot of, a lot of my students who aren't 35-year-old single moms or single dads or whatever, um, a lot of them are trying to find that course that they can fill that one slot with. You know, they, they just need this one course and, and they, they need it off cycle. Uh, they, they can't wait until September because they've got to get their, their credentials in by the end of August if they're going to move on to the next program. Um, so the kind of openness we provide, and it's, 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 it's on teaching on time, right? It's, it's, it's providing a resource in a timely manner, uh, regardless of where you are, uh, regardless of when you are. That's something that on-campus education cannot provide. And, and I think this is something that TRU needs to be really proud of. We can, through OL, make a real difference in the lives of our students. 
You're describing a kind of flexibility of learning that is a, a popular notion, right? Like we'll hear, we'll see these consultants step out and say, you know, learners really need more flexibility. Learners need to be kind of met where they're at, these kinds of phrases that we hear. But, you know, Terry O'Well has been has been doing it, <laughs> right? And it often feels like when we talk about the strengths of TRU capital T, capital R, capital U as an institution, I think sometimes the value of that flexibility is is missed in the larger picture. Part of it is just purely situational. When you're on campus and everyone around you is teaching face-to-face, and they may be teaching also an online course, but you don't see them doing that. And your, your encounters with them are going to be as other face-to-face instructors teaching courses that are, you know, fairly conventional in their structure. I mean, they, they, they follow that 13-week cycle that most of us knew when we were undergraduates a thousand years ago. So th- th- there's, there's something really familiar to that. And of course, there are exceptions. Of course, there are exceptions. But th- there's something really familiar to that part of the conversation. And it's, it, it strikes me that uh, for, for a lot of, I think for a lot of camp faculty on campus, and I used to be a on-campus faculty member, the mistake is thinking this is just an online version of the same old thing. And it's not. I want to ask you to think about history specifically as a discipline. When you say there's this difference between campus, that 13-week course, and the pace of it, and the sort of traditional scheduling, and the way you engage with the material or students are able to engage with the material in an OL version of a course that might be the same on paper, I wonder if you could sort of dig in a little bit to like what what the difference is in the way it sort of feels or the learning experience for students or your experience as an instructor? Well, I want, first off, I want to say that, you know, I haven't taught in the class, well, I have taught in the classroom uh, in the last half dozen years, four or five years, um, but but not in the same way that people who are teaching in the classroom now and have been doing so for the last 10, 20 years have, you know, the, the, the culture, the community, the supports. I mean, Brenna's there, you know, you can go to Brenna and ask her questions. <laughs> what's great in terms of pedagogy and technology. And so, I, you know, my experiences in the classroom are, uh, they're, they're, they're somewhat different, but, but um, so in Canadian history, I mean, one of the, if you're teaching a paste in the classroom course, well, you know, if this is Tuesday, then it must be Louis Riel. Um, you know, you, you, you've got a point in the course, you have to be there by week 12 or week 11. Uh, if you don't, you know, and it, of course, everybody always panics when there's a snow day or something. And you think, what, what's going to happen in World War One? You know, well, <laughs> I won't be able to teach. Well, yeah, those those sorts of gaps will emerge, and uh, students won't know how World War Two ended. That sort of thing. In, in Canadian history classes, you know, you're moving along at this pace. In the OL version of those courses, uh, if a student gets through assignments one, two, three, and is finishing assignment four, and says, "You know, I I still don't get this thing about." The Seven Years' War, I realize there's a gap in what I know. And you can go right back and start over with them on those issues. You know, you can keep that conversation going regardless of where they are ostensibly in the curriculum. And and indeed, they might say, you know, I was going to tackle assignment one first, but assignment three, that looks like the juicy one. I want to go for that. Okay, well, how do we get you ready to succeed at that? And so th- those are the kinds of conversations you can have that speak to a student's particular learning needs or their, their questions or their obstacles or the things that puzzle them. And uh, which I, you, it's harder to do. I, I think I think I can say objectively, and it's probably empirically verifiable, you can't do that in a course. It has to happen in 13 weeks and you've got 35 students or 100. It's, it's funny because what you are describing is the kind of, you know, quote unquote, personalized learning that so much ed tech 
professes to do, but you're doing it like as a human being, right? <laughs> Providing a very personalized experience for the learners who are looking for it. I like to think so. Part of, part of the challenge is, of course, getting students to, to come forward. But, you know, I, and I think a lot of faculty uh, on campus and, and, and at OL uh, realized, and certainly I think this was uh, reinforced during the, uh, the pandemic when people were teaching online, is if you're in a classroom and you've got that student who sits in the third row off to the left and never says a word and is, is busy doodling in their notepad and, and kind of looks panicked, but never says a thing, right? Well, they will talk to you online. They will they will communicate with you on through email because maybe they're they're intensely shy, uh, perhaps they're intimidated by the other students in the class, uh, perhaps they're intimidated by you. But you know, on screen, <laughs> an email environment or it's a much more level playing field. And uh, so, drawing out students, I regularly send reminders and sort of wake up calls them. You know, it's been three weeks since I've heard from you. What are you up to? And, and, and I'll set them a challenge. I'll say, don't get back to me with a problem. Get back to me with something that surprised you in the readings. You know, what did you see that you didn't expect to see? It's interesting what you're describing of uh, the sort of silent student, because I would say that the number one technology-related request that I had when campus faculty returned to in-person after the sort of campus closure period is, what can I use to replicate the experience of the live chat? during lectures, because faculty were seeing this wild engagement from students during those sessions that they don't have an equivalent for in a face-to-face -face lecture. Isn't that great? That's really good. I like that a lot. I do too. We've, we've kind of hacked together a few solutions using Slido has like a question and answer function where you can vote up questions live. So that kind of works a little bit if you have it going on the slide deck in the background. But it's uh, it was interesting to me that so many people realized for the first time if you're a member of any online communities, you know that that kind of online back channel is, is sort of a constant. And it was interesting to see that get picked up in a teaching and learning context. That, that's, that's gratifying to hear. Yeah, it's not bad, eh? Uh, let, I want to circle back to the connection between developing OER and open access, kind of meeting students where they're at idea. You've got obviously lots of experience when it comes to creating OERs, and we're seeing more and more faculty kind of taking up that challenge here at TRU on both sides of the house, which is wonderful to see. I wonder if you can cast your mind back to why you sort of took on that challenge in the first place. Is there advice that you might give to someone who was sticking a toe in the OER creation waters? Uh, I, I was in an administrative capacity and doing stuff with BC Campus. And, you know, BC Campus's story arc is an interesting one in that, that they were uh, created, I think, in the late 1990s, and, and 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 nobody quite knew what it was they were supposed to be doing. And every now and then they'd throw money at putting a course online, and you'd be able to go into this 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 vault, this uh, savings account of courses, and and take it. So you know, there's a course on forensic anthropology. Okay, great. Now I can take that and I can use that. It's sort of ready-made. It's it's you know, it's like a cooking show. Here's one I baked earlier. It seemed really limiting, and, and the quality was all over the place. And I think in, in 2011, people were getting ready their obituaries for BC campus. And somebody hit on this idea of doing open educational resources and open textbooks. And at first I was asked if I would like to, you know, muster some open educational resources. I thought, well, that is, that's a great idea because I'm interested in digital histories and what's available online have been for about 20, 30 years now. And, and so started doing that. And we got about halfway through. I said, you know, really? 
what we need is a textbook, a solid resource of some kind. Unsolid, it's in the air, but it has to be a conceptually solid resource. And and they came up with the funding for the creation of open uh, textbooks. And so we were. I, I think I was the second textbook produced by BC Campus. Exciting times. And and I and I, I would say the excitement can continue. I think the, the what I found in the writing of both the post-Confederation textbook and the Indigenous experiences, Indigenous histories textbook, is that it's better to work in a team. And if you can establish yourself as that person who is going to be the hub and, and distribute a lot of the work out, you know, I I, I developed chapters anything from 500 words to a couple of thousand words by, by calling, just cold calls to colleagues across the country who were expert in those particular areas. And, uh, you know, clean water on reserves. How long has this been an issue in Canadian history? Called up Adele Perry at the University of Manitoba. She said, yeah, I'll get you something together. Maybe by the weekend, 750 words. Okay, that's great. And so we got a really good section in the textbook from the expert in the field. And, and it introduces uh, students to the various names of, of scholars working in the, in the discipline. And these are people you're going to hear on CBC or see on the news or whatever. So they'll encounter them again and again. And that's all good. But also they, writing a textbook, is, I can got to tell you, it's hard work. It's not like Monograph, and I've written a couple of those. It's it's much harder work. You have to cover a huge waterfront of material in order to to have a real sense of where the field's going, where it's been, that sort of stuff. If you can call up that resource, you know the person you met at the conference last spring, who's doing this great stuff on whatever on cognitive psychology, then then that makes the task not only easier for you because you don't have to develop that expertise but just so much more fun because then you're going to have a conversation with this person. You're going to catch up on the research. Where's the field going? Isn't that great? Now I know more than I did going in. Well, that's cool. And it's also, there's just sort of this ethos I find in open education more broadly about sharing expertise, right? It's when you're not quite so worried about the, I don't know, the sort of scarcity of of publishing contracts or or what have you, there's a much more shared spirit in, in how we produce work that is ultimately centered on the student experience as opposed to on kind of like, you know, careerist tick boxes or whatever other reason people might pursue publication. Absolutely. And, and most institutions now recognize uh, the creation of OERs uh, as, as contributing to, you know, tenure applications and and, and promotion applications. Uh, so your portfolio is, is, is not going to be hurt. It's going to be helped by having that, that kind of work. It, it puts you in touch with a different part of the, the field too. And, and you know, I, anybody who's published with a, a university press knows what the timeline is like. It's awful. You put it out to reviewers. Yes. Oh yeah, we have, you know, they'll get back to us someday, you know, and, and, and then you've got to make revisions and that takes a while. And, you know, it just goes back and forth. Well, it's a, it's a lot more immediate with the OER. And what's great about that too, is that, you know, people who are using it at other institutions will get in touch with you and say, you made a mistake in section seven, three, uh, this is my thing. And I got to tell you, you're wildly off course here. Oh, great. Well, let's fix it. We don't have to worry about going to the publisher and saying, can we have a second edition? 
we just get the keys to the the, the uh, BC campus vault and we go in and we make a change and we come back out. It's easy peasy. And so you can be more responsible and, 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 and you know, you don't have to fear error. It's a good uh, modeling for students, right? Of, you know, whether it's noticing an error and approaching someone and working together to fix it or, you know, the humility in recognizing the error and being willing to make that change. I find that across open that making mistakes in public is kind of part of the deal and that that's okay. A couple of years back, a couple of colleagues of mine in Ontario decided to put together a, a collection of primary documents, diaries, uh, what maps, what, whatever they could find that was available, it was in the Creative Commons, uh, or, or you know what the copyrights had expired, that sort of thing. Put it together and assemble it with with introductions, perhaps with analysis, that sort of stuff, and and in the form of another open textbook. This was meant to complement. I mean, these guys. I didn't work with these guys on on the open textbooks. But they wanted a, a primary document collection to complement my open textbooks. This was all going to come together. Just great. So it covers about 500 years, 600 years of uh, northern North American history. Great stuff. So we're at a conference and, and we're talking about, well, what's missing? So, well, we have nothing on the experience of uh, the LGBTQ community in the, the mid-20th century. There's nothing in here. Can we do something? And we sat down, and within about an hour's time, we had a whole section of materials that students could use. And then we took that back to students and said, is this going to work for you? Is this, is, are these the resources that, that to, your, to your eye, uh, look sufficient? Can you find anything else? And we showed them how to find primary resource, whether it's a newspaper article from 1895 or whatever, you can build something as part of a project in class and have that roll forward in the next years. Your students work, rather than being an essay that goes in the garbage bin when they're done, becomes something that lasts. I think there is a huge difference in the student's level of engagement in that kind of a project. Well, it really matters, right? I mean, it, it has an audience and, and as you say, a life beyond the class itself. You're also kind of uh, picking at another sort of strength of open resources, which is this adaptability piece. And you alluded to that off the top, right? That somebody who's teaching in another context might find that they, you know, they really like your chapters one to five, but they're revising chapter six. And I think that that capacity to localize is maybe an under-tapped or under-resourced strength, right? That oftentimes people kind of feel like, oh, well, I got to take this text or not, but here's an option to make it exactly what you need it to be if you have time and resources to do it. But at the same time, you know, I, I remember as a student, the number of times I bought like a $200 textbook and I'd get to class and the professor would be like, okay, well, we're only going to use chapter two and five because the rest of it is garbage. And I'd be like, um, wish you had said something before I, before I bought it, right? Whereas there's A, that cost doesn't exist for students, but B, that kind of ethos of like taking it apart and dismantling it and reassembling it into something that is usable for us in our contexts is sort of part of the deal. I, I, I hadn't realized how much the cost of textbooks had gone up. You know, I, there, there was a five-year period where it just <laughs> seemed to go up exponentially and to the start. And then I hadn't looked until the end of that period. And, oh, my God, you know, we're asking students to spend $400, $500 on these two textbooks for this course. And, and, and really, are we making good use of that resource? Are they actually reading it? Do we test their reading of it somehow? Uh, because we're also asking them to read, you know, different articles and all the other stuff. So realizing that <laughs> they probably, they were spending a lot of money on something that 
really wasn't ideal from a pedagogical perspective. You know, it, it covered the wrong themes, perhaps. Um, but it was, it, I thought it was an affordable time. Oh my God, there were all sorts of mistakes being made. It was just terrible. Okay, you're, you're making me think of a, a moment where I had a real wake-up call when I was at Douglas and I went down to the bookstore and I saw what my textbook was being sold for. Like I had been quoted one price from, you know, yeah. whoever it was, Broadview or whatever. And then I saw it at the bookstore's markup price. And it, it, I mean, there's a very real tangible question of ethics. Instructors who are in control of their course materials there, there has to be a bigger ethical conversation around that piece of it. Yeah, I, I, I think there does. I, you know, what, what do you, what do you really want the students to get out of this? You know, I, I look at some of my colleagues. One of the things I used to love doing was going to bookstores, university bookstores on different campuses, and I'd go down the shelves, find the courses I was teaching, see what they were using, and sometimes you'd find that they, they, they had a textbook, survey text, but also they were asking the students to read four or five, maybe six other smaller books you know, a novel or two plus this, this one special essay, long essay and all this. And I think, oh my God, this looks like a graduate course. And this is a first year course. And the students, they don't have time for this. Maybe they did in the 1960s and 70s. And you're still using the same bloody lament for a nation anyways. My God, <laughs> these students do not have that sort of time. And I think one of the things, the pandemic and, and uh, you know, the, the one that really hit us uh, when I was teaching this course at Fraser Valley was uh, the, the atmospheric river, and, and uh, which, which uh, flowed into a valley basin. And uh, one of my students, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk on television media at the time about, about a pump house. It was breaking down and just keeping this thing operating was all that was saving that valley. And her dad was the pump house. That was his job. He was responsible for this pump station. And, and she was spending every minute she could helping him out. I mean, she wasn't an employee, but she was doing what she could to, to just help him out. And I, it was one of those moments really illustrative for me how you know, we talk about students having jobs and, and otherwise, but they really do have other lives. They have really rich and textured and busy and complicated and messy lives. Asking them to read six books in a course, that's an ethical issue. You're right. We need to have a conversation about whether you're you're doing the right thing there, pal. You know, you've you've kind of brought us back full circle to this idea of who the student is, right? And and who it is we serve. And I think that whether the actual student body has changed, we're certainly more aware of those rich and textured lives that you're describing and, and the ways in which we as faculty, as people who support learning, can do a better job of making learning something that fits into their lives. But, you know, the the idea that um, you can leave everything at the door when you walk into the classroom, I think that's a fairly antiquated notion. And yeah. it never fit very many students, I don't think. Part of the academy kind of leads you to think that way anyways. You know, that it's if you've got the, the time to do a doctorate or a master's and, and really sink your teeth into thoughts, thinking about your field and research. And I think, I think it leads to this, this, misguided perception that all students are in that situation. They're not. When you're going through a PhD, I think it's changing, but even still when I was going through my PhD, there's a real sense that like you're being trained to create new people who will eventually go to grad school. And then you get out on the job market and you take a job teaching, you know, whether it's at a college or, you know, I'm, my discipline is English. So most of the jobs 
in yeah. this discipline are no longer teaching majors. They're teaching, you know, introductory academic writing or whatever. And uh, there's not really a sense of how that changes as we've been talking about the ethics of teaching, the choices that we make, like it's a, it's a whole different ball game. And I don't think, I mean, I hope programs are getting better at it. I did not feel well prepared for that reality when I came out. I, I, I certainly hope that programs are, are, are addressing those issues. Uh, I know, as I say, I was, I was doing this, this very part-time work, very sessional work at, at Fraser Valley through the pandemic. And we had great tech support. We had wonderful tech support. And, 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 and they were able to provoke conversations among faculty. At the time that I was teaching face-to-face on campus there, which was very brief, I just wanted to, actually, I just wanted to see how the open textbooks worked in a face-to-face environment, which was a lot of fun. And that was, that was my opportunity to do it. Uh, but, but in the time I was teaching face-to-face there, there weren't conversations about students, students' particular needs or the culture of students' needs and how you know we might be doing things carelessly. A nice part of this gig is I get to uh, talk to student affairs professionals on campus and and see what's kind of going on in that world. And I think compared to what was around when when I started my teaching career, I think it's really I think it's really expanded. And I think faculty are in a position of having to catch up, right? Like I think often the classroom, unfortunately, is maybe the least connected to students' real lives in a lot of contexts. And, and and maybe that's the work that those of us who care about teaching and learning need to focus on now. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I got lucky when I started my career at uh, Caribou in 1989. I taught earlier at, at some English universities and polytechnics. And uh, in my first year of teaching at Caribou, I had an extraordinary group of students. And I, I think maybe one in a hundred had parents who'd gone to post-secondary. You know, a great many of them had parents who hadn't completed high school. And they were they were a great bunch. Some of them I still keep in touch with. You know, they're all over the globe. And there was this group of, I don't know, a dozen who were in this BC history course. And they taught me so much about the community and their culture and 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 what it was like for them to be able to stay in Kamloops to do third year university as opposed to having to transfer to the coast to finish their university degree. I, one of my intro Canadian students show up. I've had big lecture hall. There were about a hundred students in that class and uh, in the clock tower lecture hall, and and he'd fall asleep within five minutes. His head would be on his desk, and you know I, I thought about being a jerk and going over and waking him up or something like that, and. I thought, no, just got to let it, he knows he's falling asleep. He'll work out what he needs to do. And if he needs to talk, I'll make myself available. That's great. I go home and read the paper. The guy's competing. He's got a black belt in judo and he's competing internationally. So, so two things I took away from this. One, if I'd woken him up, I'd be dead. Like a dry twig. But secondly, you've got to you, you've got to assume that there's this, this other world going on out there. And because they're not coming from you know Shaughnessy or some some nice neighborhood you know on the west side, because they're coming from a variety of backgrounds. Yeah, I mean that's what makes it exciting. I don't want those samey students. I want the ones who've got really interesting lives. I think that is a fantastic place to end our conversation today, John. I really appreciate your time. I think, you know, thinking about our students as whole people and how to best serve them, especially as we seem to be entering a period of transition for the institution, I think it's really valuable. So thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome so much for my time today. Good to talk. Take care. 
So that is it for season three, episode eight of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. And in both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip, a tiny teaching tip for end of term, one that calls back my conversation with John Belshaw today. When's the last time you checked in on your textbook prices if you're teaching faculty? I ask because as John and I were talking about, for faculty who have control over their teaching materials, this is one place where we can be having some really serious ethical conversations about the choices we make and whether or not we live our classroom values when it comes to stepping into the bookstore. I definitely had the experience of being surprised by what the price of my book was when I finally went down to the bookstore to check it out one day back when I was teaching faculty. I had been quoted a very different price from the publisher, and I was shocked to see what I was asking my students to pay for. In other semesters, I had thought every individual book I was assigning was affordable, and it was, but when I added them all together, it was not. This is a good moment to check in on what you've assigned for January. I get that you probably can't make changes about it now, but knowledge is power, and it's the first step towards a more ethical practice. So if you haven't done that yet, please do. For those of you who are already my Open Education Resource Champions, you get this week off. (laughs) My friends, uh, thank you for your patience, your support, and your listening. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other, and I will see you real soon. Bye-bye.